Podcast of the Cinema. I'm Alonzo Duraldi. That's Dave White. We're film critics. We're married and. And you're sneezing? No, I had like a cough that I was okay. suppressing. All right. Thanks very much. <laughs> um, and yeah, so the, this is a, a kind of a special adjunct to this a, week's a episode. Mini, a mini episode. A mini so yeah. Yes, we'll be coming in later to talk about, you know, Cocaine Bear, which we know is the movie everybody wants to talk about this weekend. Uh, but we were very excited to have the chance to talk about Jesus Revolution, which turned out to be a bigger hit than anybody expected this weekend. Um, and as always, when we dig into these movies about contemporary Christianity, uh, Dave is far more well-versed than I am on this subject. So we bring in some ringers, and this week uh, we've got some great ones. Joining us from the veteran, the Veterans of Culture War podcast, please welcome Zach Malm and Dave Lester. Gentlemen, hello. Thank hello. you. Thank you. Glad to be here. Blessings for, to you. Thanks for being here. For, for people who've never listened to your show, you want to give us a quick rundown of what y'all do and why you do it and why you're here this week? Yeah. Um, so Veterans of Culture Wars, uh, we have conversations about evangelical Christianity, and Zach and I are both on, you know, more the left side of the spectrum. I am still, uh, I still classify myself as the evangelical. Um, Zach uh, can speak for himself, but he is an ex-evangelical and has uh, moved on from the faith. And rather than have a debate show or do something of that nature, we just wanted to have conversations at this time, have different people on, uh, tell them their stories, whether good, bad, or ugly, um, and, and just have conversations about the faith. And every once in a while, we do movie episodes as well. And I'm doing my best to try to uh, to get Dave out of out of church. Um, <laughs> we'll we'll see. It's been my my thing. That's that's really the the, the uber arc of our show, and our finale is going to be incredible uh, once we get there. So <laughs> Slowly but surely, you have an evil agenda then. <laughs> uh, my therapist may differ on that. Uh, <laughs> oh, I haven't been part of the church for thirty. Uh, how many years? You tell me. 33 years. So, <laughs> listen. And it's something you don't think about at all because it didn't inform your very being and understanding of the world, right? <laughs> so y'all are varying degrees of Jellical Cat. Um, but uh, so, yeah, th this is a show, this is a movie, rather, that is a docudrama about a an important pivot point in the history of the evangelical church in America, um, the dawn of contemporary Christian music, along with other uh, things that kind of came out of this moment. So Dave White, uh, give us a real quick rundown. What is Jesus Revolution about? Okay, directed by John Irwin, who is the guy, uh, well, there are two Irwin brothers. Right. But John Irwin solo directed this along with, well, sorry, he co-directed this along with uh, Brent McCorkle, okay, but not with his other brother. Gotcha. <laughs> um, he uh, and the other Irwin were responsible for the documentary The Jesus Music, mm -hmm. which was also released by Lionsgate, uh, as was The Jesus Revolution. And they did what well, I can only Here's, imagine. And they also did I can only imagine. Um, the weird thing about this, uh, now that we've had a little pre-chat about the box office, this surprising box office hit, is that The Jesus Music documentary kind of tanked at the box office. Like, very few people went to see it. And I find that fascinating because it is about a subject that is far more known and accessible than this particular subject. You know, this is a story that informed everything that came after it, it's, you know, happening. Uh, but a lot of contemporary evangelical Christians, white evangelical Christians, that's really who we're talking about here, they might not know anything about it at all, uh, but it's the very basis of where we are today with that church. So three main characters in this uh, story. Uh, the main one, 
a guy named Greg Laurie. If you've never heard of him, he is an evangelist. He's been a pastor for decades now. He's about 70 at this point. He is part of what is called the Harvest Crusades. He just goes everywhere having these big, you know, crying fests. <laughs> and the He came from a place in Southern California, um, uh, Costa Mesa. Calvary Chapel was the name of the church. Calvary Chapel was a church, uh, and the pastor of that church was named Chuck Smith. In this film, Chuck Smith is played by Kelsey Grammer. At the time of the story, Chuck Smith was about 41, 42. Kelsey Grammer himself is about 70 years old. So Kelsey Grammer, far older <laughs> than the character. That, that kind of sets the pace for a it, lot of it choices. It does, in this yes. It's a real so, dear, 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 dear Chuck Hansen, dear Lonnie Hansen situation <laughs> going yeah. on with this movie. Yeah. Reese is the word. So, um... <laughs> Uh, the third character is a man named Lonnie Frisbee, played by uh, uh, an actor named uh, Jonathan Rumi. If you've seen him, it's because you were watching the TV show The Chosen, because he plays Jesus on the show The Chosen. Therefore, there is no wig, there is no beard, no fake beard. That's him playing, Rocking the look. <laughs> playing Lonnie Frisbee, who was at the time, Lonnie Frisbee was about 20 years old, Jonathan Rumi is 48, and but a youthful 48, an actor 48, yes. right? And goes so, to the gym 48. Yeah, so goes to the gym so much that in the scenes where they are uh, baptizing people in the in the ocean, they really don't show you much of his shirtless torso because he's jacked. <laughs> and Lonnie he's Frisbee, Jesus abs. Lonnie Frisbee was a, a a burnout LSD person from the hippie world of Haight Ashbury. Was not going to the gym. But he did have the beard and the hair, and everyone said he looked like Jesus at the time. Um, so these are the three characters, right? They're real people. Lonnie Frisbee was sort of the catalyst for all of this. Um, and when I say sort of, I'm not even really saying sort of. He was the catalyst for all of this. A former hippie. He had left San Francisco. But he was still doing hippie things. He uh, dropped acid had a vision of God in the desert, decided to become a Christian. They don't tell you about that kind of conversion in the New Testament, but that's how it happened with him. And he felt the uh, the calling, as is known in evangelical circles, to uh, win people for Christ, to uh, evangelize as many people as he could, and he did. He led so many young people with a fervor that I, I cannot fully explain, um, other than the, all of the social and political and economic and moral realities that inform religious revivals. You could talk to an academic person about these sorts of things. It's a very complex subject. But he was there. He lit the fire for this. Greg Laurie, who was a disaffected uh, teenager with, with a a terrible uh, childhood. So terrible that Greg Laurie has kind of made a bit of a cottage industry <laughs> about talking about his childhood. He wrote a book in the 2000s called Lost Boy. It became a documentary called Lost Boy. He wrote the book The Jesus Revolution, on which this film is based, kind of telling the same story, but in an updated way. So he kind of keeps going back to this well as a storyteller and that his, his childhood and his conversion is, is part of his ongoing evangelism through Harvest Crusade. So this film is the story of the, the, the converging of these three people, Lonnie Frisbee expanding Calvary Chapel into a giant megachurch uh, just by bringing in countless young uh, baby, baby boomers, boomers who were, again, they were tired of drugs and they were tired of, you know, everything they were looking for. They decided to just go back to where it was safe and the stuff they had grown up with, but they needed it to be in a new package. And because they were hippies and they had long hair and they had, 
you know, new kinds of clothes. They and needed to not wear shoes. They needed not to wear shoes. Thank <laughs> God that trend died. Everybody was going to get a tapeworm, a ringworm, sorry, a ringworm that way. Well, at least Kelsey Grammer was washing the feet in, in that one scene. So, you know, I question, <laughs> trying I question to mitigate the historical uh, accuracy of that. Yeah, was, Kelsey Grammer's part was supposed to be played by Jim Gaffigan initially. He, initially, yes. Oh, Jim wow. Gaffigan Whoa. was cast and then he was replaced by Kelsey Grammer. So, yeah, the, the I mean, just speaking from an outsider perspective, the interesting thing about this is the, the idea of the church is stuffy and white and stultifying. And then suddenly in comes in this new blood of like the young cool kids who are all about Jesus all of a sudden and the old squares not being able to deal with it. But you know, even Kelsey Grammer finally coming around realizing he's got to throw his doors open to these. Yes. And if I may literally unwashed and, and, and that turns the church around. Right. And not just that church. Right. This is the last thing <laughs> the, I wanted the to say. Church. The last thing I wanted to say before we open up the discussion is this spread like wildfire throughout the United States. My own uh, entry into the evangelical church, very specifically a, an Assembly of God church, which was fully part of the charismatic tradition with speaking in tongues and people putting their hands on you to heal you of stuff. Um, that's where I got involved. I was nine, and it's all because my oldest brother was a part of this wave of kids who came along and did all of this because it was such a youth oriented movement and churches didn't really want them in their nice, clean churches. These kids set up things like coffee houses all over the country. And my brother was in high school and he went to this coffee house and contemporary Christian, you know, the very beginnings of contemporary Christian music was being played in these coffee houses. And these kids just hung out there. And they would go out on the street and start talking to people about Jesus. So I'm the direct result of this wave of uh, uh, this this wave of revival that took place among old young baby boomers in that in the 1970s. I mean, Amy Grant wrote a song about it on an album that came out in the late 80s. The name of the song is 1974, when she was 14 years old, and this happened to her. In the documentary, The Jesus Music, she talks about this little coffee house in Nashville that they all would go to. So this isn't an isolated thing about this one little church. It isn't, you know, a mini event. It is a thing that... It's a pivot point. It is a pivot point in contemporary evangelical Christianity. And what you know of that world today is a direct result of this. Okay. Okay. So, uh, Zach, Dave, L, uh, is this was this lore with which you were already familiar? Yes. Yes, I was quite familiar. Um, uh, there, there's a great book called God's Forever Forever Family. Uh, which one of my favorite anecdotes from that is it's not just coffee shops. You, if, down in Texas, a bunch of Christian hippies opened a steakhouse called the <laughs> Fatted Calf, which had no prices. They just had a basket in the middle, and they said, if you can pay, put money in there. If you can't pay, take money out of there. Right. A and they lasted for several years until like the price of meat got too expensive. Um, but like these, these were people that were really motivated to serve those that didn't, didn't have need, uh, that didn't, didn't, uh, yeah, that, that had needs, those that, that weren't getting by, uh, as well as the Greg Lorries and Chuck Smiths of the world. Um, and, and really this story cannot be, t well, this movie wouldn't exist without a documentary called Frisbee. The Life and Death of a Hippie pa uh, Preacher. I have seen that documentary. I, I saw a screening of it in 2005 with the director in which uh, 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 Larry Norman showed up ranting and raving uh, at the director. He had, he like, I assume he flew there up, up to Seattle because he knew about the screening. Wow. He had beef. I, 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 think, I think the issue was the director was working on a Larry Norman uh, documentary and Larry didn't own the rights to his own music. Larry didn't like some of the stuff that was in the movie and he was mad that his songs were going to be in it. And the director's right. like, well, you know, I paid for him. <laughs> I licensed him. Sorry. Um, but it, it was quite a moment. Uh, and, and, uh, one of the 
really the 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 premise of that documentary by David DeSavatino is that really arguably the most important figure of the Jesus movement, the the man who co-founded two major denominations, Calvary Chapel, which grew to like uh, 10,000 individual churches, and then later the Vineyard, which I grew up in, uh, was a gay man, and that his uh, story was left out of the histories by people that didn't want to complicate it and wanted to take the credit for it. You know, he was working with pastors 20, 30 years older than him that, I mean, you look at this movie and it's sort of like, you know, well, for one thing, Greg Laurie originally produced it, but now I don't see his name listed as a producer, but for some reason, he's the main character. He's the least interesting one. And it's sort of the triumph of this preacher discovering his ministry (laughs) and, and converting all these people. There's not really a sense of how important the art was. I mean, they keep talking about how Greg Laurie's cartoons are just incredible art and they're fine, <laughs> but <laughs> but like they're not even using the music of the era apart from having Love Song uh, in there a little bit, who were truly incredible. I, I, I think the best of Love Song is the best of all Christian music, and I still think of what they were doing as akin to the punk movement later of their whole thing was you don't have to to play the organ, you don't have to know hymns. You need you just take a few chords and you can worship God. That's all it takes, and that was a radical idea. But they don't really get into that. Um, the guy that that uh, that Lonnie co-founded the Vineyard with, John Wimber, very very famous. You can trace a line from him to the January sixth uh, protests and, oh, and the <laughs> the the influence of of the miracle focus, all that sort of stuff. But like. He, he wrote a book that in detailing the history of the vineyard, he only referred to Lonnie as the young man. Mm-hmm. Um, they just completely wrote him out. Um, yeah. Even eulogizing him, Chuck Smith was like, really unfortunate that we just never saw what he was capable of because of, you know, his proclivities or whatever. He didn't exactly say it like that, but... It, it's statements like he he went out in the wilderness, but uh, he was you know a faithful a faithful man of God. I think you know in time for the movie coming out. I read this on Greg Laurie's website where he says, "quote Lonnie was the face and a catalyzing force of the Jesus movement that rippled through the late 1960s and early 1970s. During that time, Lonnie had a profound impact on my life, and for a short time, he was a spiritual spiritual mentor to me as well." Unquote. So I mean. They, they acknowledge it now, but I think for, for a while that was hidden. And, and that's, you know, th- this whole thing is really interesting to me. And, and I would say I, you know, I relatively like this movie, like maybe a three star out of five star. That's um, what I gave it. You know, it has high production values. There's some interesting performances. But I think where they really chickened out was uh, was really diving into Lonnie's life and being honest about his sexuality and honest also about his faith. I, I think there's tremendous evidence that he was a, a faithful Christian until he tragically died of AIDS at my age, 43, in 1993. Oh, he died of AIDS. Um, Sorry, I only saw the movie, so I didn't know that. They, they did not mention <laughs> that, yeah. yeah. Um, my my but, one thing going into this was like, how gay is Lonnie Frisbee going to get to be? Answer, zero. None. Nothing. Yeah. There was, he has a wife. It's never mentioned that his demise is never mentioned. There was one and, line. Yeah, Dave, do you line. know the line? Yeah, no. Well, I don't have it exactly, but it I, was I wrote so, it down. It was so like weirdly kind of pointing at it very, very, very subtly when he had the conflict with Chuck Smith. And he's like, uh, he was with his wife and he said, Well, we're going to go down to Florida to work on our marriage. Yep. You know, that was. Uh, yeah, I mean that you was know, a story that the, 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 the church hint. told for a while. But yeah, the, the the one that I was thinking of is when talking about his time up at Haight Ashbury, he says we we did everything and everyone and everyone and everyone. That's the only time it really mentions it in the end credits. You get title, you know, you get a picture and it says Lonnie died in 1993, still preaching the good news and dreaming of another Jesus movement. Lonnie was 43 years old when he died. Right. The actor playing him was 48. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, honestly, it it feels like an insidious casting choice to me that that removes that that tragedy, that dissonance of, of like like when people see the title card and says, "Oh, he died in 1993." Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Like he, 
like a 48 year old actor 25 years later this character is is dead you know <laughs> early 70s one. or so no he was 43 and that should be a stunning fact to not explain at all well i i brought up to dave white when it was over like that i was kind of annoyed by that and he said it's probably for the best because if they had mentioned it they would have made they would have couched it in thoroughly negative and like bigoted terms so maybe invisibility is a, the is the better option here because like i got a i got a press release this morning from something called loor.tv and they do it's some sort of christian media company and they were talking about how great this movie is and how like a lot of times christian movies suck but not this one blah 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 and then the guy says his complaint is that they don't go into it because they don't then also demonize him over it it says um <laughs> At the end, the writer state flatly that Lonnie Frisbee was still preaching Jesus at the end of his life. I don't have the exact quote, but that statement is misleading, putting it as graciously as I can, to audiences. Frisbee ended up divorcing his wife, Connie, went back to homosexuality, and eventually died of HIV-AIDS. Before he died, he did repent of this, and he came back to Christ. In a visit with Greg Laurie on his deathbed, he told him he believed he would be healed and preach, preach again. That never happened. And so it's like... You know, he, he says that that like not mentioning it is to keep the feel good vibes. But you know, you 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 really need to bring this up when you're talking about Lonnie Frisbee. But again, not because it's true and and it's important that a gay guy had this giant impact on the evangelical church, but because they needed a, a reason to dump on oh terrible gays and his AIDS, you guys. Yeah. You know, mm. so yeah, yeah. I, I guess it, maybe I mean, we're better off that they didn't go there at all. It, it's really complex, you know, because. Even even at the time, there was there was barely a semblance of what we would now call LGBTQ affirming theology, right. uh, where Lo, you know Connie Lonnie's wife said that when he proposed to her, he didn't mention that he loved her. <laughs> like that wasn't the reason why he was proposing. Apparently, he didn't say anything about that, but he did say that he had in the past struggled with same sex attraction or, or used as or with homosexuality in general. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that he was always really conflicted, have, conflicted about himself. I read Chuck Gerard's autobiography, um, the, the lead singer and, and main songwriter of Love Song. Um, he like just had a PDF you could download on his website some years ago. And I was reading through it, like try to, trying to figure out what he would say about that. And, and basically he, he said that uh, – that Lonnie had had never said anything to him uh, about that. Uh, he said, uh, "I wrote down some quotes from that, but um, but he had an amazing story about just the, the 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 magnetism of Lonnie that nobody else has, and and you kind of get a sense of that in the movie. But um, he he writes about one time he and one of the members of Love Song there there he says we were driving around Newport Beach with Lonnie." All of a sudden, he pulled into the parking lot of an apartment complex. Get your guitars and follow me, he said in his customary direct manner. We walked up some stairs to an apartment on the second floor, and Lonnie knocked on the door. As the door opened, marijuana smoke wafted from the room. He walked in as if he owned the place and then announced to about a dozen very stoned, baffled hippies, We are servants of the Most High God, and we have come to share the good news of the gospel of salvation with you. But first, Love Song is going to play. What about Jesus said? uh, What about what Jesus said? Well, we weren't exactly Love Song. He was just Fred and me, but we sang the song as best as we could. Afterward, Lonnie presented the gospel to the still stunned occupants of the room who looked like they thought they might be hallucinating the whole thing. After he preached, he asked, who wants to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Amazingly, two hands went up very boldly, and Lonnie prayed out loud for them to become Christians. As abruptly as we entered, we left and went back to the car. The drive resumed, and strangely, not much was said about what had just happened. It was as if it was just routine for Lonnie, and we were too surprised to react. For years after, I wondered what had caused Lonnie to enter that particular apartment. I always meant to ask him, but our paths parted for a season, and he went to be with the Lord before I could ask. Like... This is a guy that, yeah, not only did did he meet Jesus on an acid trip hallucinating in the desert, he, like, performed his first baptisms of people while they were still high and naked. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And he just knew where the people are that would be interested in his message in a way that, that Chuck Smith never did and never understood. 
Um, he he represented the old school at the time, Chuck Smith, the the old school church. Yeah. Um, I I as a Christian, I love this era of the Jesus movement in the early seventies. I I wish it was LGBT inclusive, um, because maybe things would have turned out different with Lonnie if that were the case. If if they were more accepting of those identities of gay and Christian. But I like the grassroots movement of it. Um, I think another thing that the film didn't really get into was that when, you know, the hippies became these Jesus freaks, um, it was certainly about their faith in Jesus and being born again. But there was a lot of um, political and kind of the ethics that that came over at this time of protesting the Vietnam War, of um, anti-materialism, anti-consumerism, stuff that would relatively be associated with more left-wing politics. I, I thought the movie shied away from that as well, and I think we've maybe already covered why, because, I mean, if you go too far down the path, which they actually were. I mean, you can listen to Larry Norman's music and he rails against the Vietnam War and about poverty and about the government and maybe even his country just selling out this generation. There was a lot of anger. There was a lot of disillusionment. And that's what found a lot of these people uh, getting into this Jesus freak movement, looking for something transcendent, looking for God when they feel like everything else had failed them. And authenticity the joke I made today was that, and then they all voted for Reagan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I know. Yeah. It's, oh, the that's my parents' story. You know, they had a Jesus band in the seventies. They had they like built a recording studio in their house. Uh, you at Narnia heads. This was called uh, Don Treader Studios. Oh. Uh, <laughs> and and yeah, they told me. You know, the one time they they voted for for a Democrat, they got burned, Jimmy Carter, and they just mm-hmm. never went back. The ind- the narrative of individualism is, to me, what was the gear that shifted mm-hmm. at that time. You know, the idea of a communal anything, um, the idea of actually addressing, you know, the stuff that Christians are traditionally told that they should be <laughs> addressing. <laughs> by people uh, who are often outside the church. Um, that stuff was beginning to get addressed by those young people in that short period of time. Uh, and then the 80s came. And the winning story became you personally and your personal relationship with God. You mm-hmm. and only you and you and God, and it's nobody else. Um, I remember... Uh, I, I remained a part of the church until the mid-ish 80s, mid to late 80s. And I remember a book came out uh, by a guy named Ron Sider called Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. Yeah. And, and it was the beginning for me, even before my own coming out, it was the beginning for me of a moment uh, where I began to look around me and see that what I thought was important was not what everyone else was telling me was important. Um, and then I heard uh, uh, a minister named Tony Campolo speak, and and he kind of radicalized me in a in a real way uh, toward a definitely more left wing understanding. Uh, of of the world and of what I thought the church ought to be, so the 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 dominant story that we're hearing from this film is the side that won. Mm-hmm. You know? Exactly. <laughs> it is. It's. They don't go into very much the 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 ripple effect of how it how it played out in the in the culture. They. They talk about Greg Laurie and his relationship with God, the end. <laughs> and so, and and poor Lonnie died. Uh, but going back to what Alonzo said about the the erasing his homosexuality from this film, there has been a lot of finger pointing lately at Greg Laurie and the people who were associated with him about Lonnie Frisbee, Lonnie Frisbee's queer erasure. And I think this film might have been a step toward. Like bringing him back into the story 
without the sticky issue of we all think this is really gross. Why we erased him in the first place. Yeah, why we erased him in the first place. Because they couldn't bring him back into the story and say how they really felt without, again, trampling the good vibes. So that is... Because Greg Laurie, not three weeks ago, gave an interview where he talked about Lonnie Frisbee giving being being gay and how how terrible that was. Um, so the 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 question is for me not should we celebrate this this gay man for what he did, but you know should any of this have been celebrated because it all turned out so badly in the end and the way we have. The way we exist now alongside white evangelical Christians in the United States is nothing short of horrifying because the culture is dead set on a kind of nihilism that I don't understand because I've been out of it for so long. Um, and I don't know. What do you all think about this? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I think initially the movement was about rejecting the the current power structures of of the contemporary Christian Christian expressions in our society and and really trying to take take Jesus at his word and and ultimately what happened as with many other movements the powerful co-opted it and used it to I don't know launder their reputations in ministry and have them seem cooler and more authentic and more groundbreaking than they were and the power structure stayed the same. No. Nothing really got changed. Uh, I'm the the early days of of the Christian music world really was incredible. Like 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 I said I liken it to the punk movement and they were they were just like okay we, we got these songs we wrote these songs I guess enough people like them that let's start our own little label and put them out ourselves. You know, it was very no. DIY. Um, and then some of those same people ended up, you know, moving to Nashville and becoming part of the big machine where none of these labels really exist as any separate, uh, Christian company run by Christians trying to spread the word of God. They're all imprints of major corporations who don't care less. They were all bought up. All of them. Yeah. Yeah. And as far as the nihilism, yeah, it's, it's. It's hard not to look at the Trump era, which hopefully is over, but I'm kind of afraid maybe might not be, and we'll find out pretty soon. But it's hard not to look at the era and not see nihilism, not not see just almost a an angry, desperate. You know, they they feel like their backs are against are against the wall, but I mean they they feel that way, but they still have a tremendous amount of power. I mean, yep. you know, the, the amount of people that are conservative in this country is probably around 40%, and that's by far probably bigger than anything else. Yep. Um, so there's, you know, there is definitely a sense of nihilism. Zach has shared on our podcast in, in trying to understand and explain the um, evangelical church's, you know, the large embrace of Trump, you know, right around 80% or whatever it was. And obviously, the first black president may have had something to do with elements of the movement being angry. But, yep. you know, uh, Zach talked about the Obergefell decision as well uh, yep. in 2015. And it seems like the LGBT issue has really reached a boiling point with the conservative movement as people are, are really angry. Marjorie Taylor Greene is talking about civil war on Fox News. Yeah. You know, there's just this real nihilism and in some quarters, you know, threats of violence uh, about all this stuff. And it is, it is horrifying. I, I, I also think there, there's something important that's specific to the generation of, of these kids. And they were kids yeah. that, that started this movement. You know, these were boomers. They're the post-war generation. They were all living under the threat of nuclear annihilation. And I, I, I think that the rapture ideology formed out of an obsession with this instantaneous mass annihilation, mm-hmm. a way of turning this this fear and inverting it, turning it into a positive thing where, yes, you know, millions or billions of us are all going to disappear, vanish all at once, but it's to be with God. Yep. And they all thought it was it was going to happen soon. The the New York Times said that the 
that the top selling nonfiction book of the 1970s was Hal Lindsey's Late Great Planet Earth. Yeah. Which was huh. in, incredibly influential <laughs> yeah. in in that rapture panic, rapture fear. And and you can see somebody like Lonnie stopping and going into the apartment of somebody he doesn't know to save them is partially because he thinks that he has a very small window right. of opportunity right. to, sh- to share this with these people. He right. takes it really seriously and says, everybody here is going to hell maybe in the next year. In the next 24 hours. You know, if I, if I, I don't, if I don't reach ready. them. Yeah. And, and that was a bedrock uh, theological principle at Calvary Chapel, like Chuck Smith uh, at one point, like declared that it was going to happen, like by the end of 1981, I think, mm-hmm. and then had I I don't remember how he responded once 82 hit, but it was you know <laughs> if if you are going to be at our church, you have to believe that the rapture is coming coming, yep. and what we've we've seen now, and you can hear it in the words of of the Lauren Boberts of the world, um, and and. If, if you listen to the Straight White American Jesus podcast, they did an incredible series called Charismatic Revival Fury that, that goes into the, the charismatic wings of evangelicalism and their connections with, with January 6th and, and MAGA and all this stuff. You, you see, they've, they've gotten rid of rapture theology. They're, they just don't really care about it anymore, and what they care about now is a victorious eschatology. Yeah. So they have this whole thing called the Seven Mountains Mandate. Lance Wallnow coined the term, where they they say there's seven mountains of culture, and once Christians are in charge of all seven of these mountains, that will cause Jesus to return. It isn't just <laughs> something that's just going to happen when I'm asleep, and or, or you know the kid's going to come home from school and dad's razors buzzing in the sink like in the thief of the night. You know <laughs> that that we are actively trying to cause this to happen by putting. Christians in charge of the mountain of government, of education, of the arts. Uh, and, and you know, you hear Bobert saying, you know, I, I think, you know, it's it's going to be awesome uh, at, at the end, you know, Christians are going to be, you know, backing the devil into a corner, or whatever. They, they, they just think they're going to win, 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 and then Jesus comes back. Whereas it used to be, the world is going to get awful, there's going to be guillotines for Christians if you don't get a barcode on your wrists, like right. all this stuff. They've completely <clears throat> changed it. I, I think because they've grown out of any sort of fear of the nuclear stuff that that was so much a part of their childhoods and such. What I think is interesting about this movie, and I have to say, as a movie, it is probably one of the best of the contemporary faith-based films I've ever seen. Just in absolutely terms of like camera work and you know use of extras and editing and and like just the the actors cr- who are act- actors who are actors yeah. like on a craft <laughs> level. Like this, it really is feels. 20 times the movie that like one of the God's Not Dead films does. But, but I, but it also, you know, I, I made the joke today. I said that this movie is to contemporary Christianity what 80 for Brady is to the NFL. It's like this <laughs> glossy, incredible version of the thing that you want it to be, but it isn't, you know? Yeah. And so, yeah, I think that for maybe, I mean, this movie, I, I keep feeling like it's being made for young people who are put off by all the Trumpy stuff that their parents are into, and mm-hmm. they want to experience this idea of the church as this, like, genuinely radical, genuinely, like, Jesus-following in all the complicated ways ministry, even though that church is dead. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it is. And it's, you know, a way for their parents and grandparents to tell them, see, you know, we used to be cool. Um but yeah, I, I've been thinking because yeah, I gave it three stars. I do think that from a from a craft standpoint, it's it's well made. But I keep thinking of the Ebert maximum: um, uh, a film isn't what it is about; it's how it is about it. And uh, it checks a lot of the boxes of my interests. Yes, okay, it it is about the early Jesus people movement and Calvary Chapel and and love song. Like I know too much about this stuff. Like my 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 parents started a worship leader supply business that they ran for thirty years. It was the biggest of its kind, like west of the Mississippi. And I worked there a lot. It was in my basement for my the first thirteen years of my life. In my spare time, I listened to kids' church musicals, um, <laughs> and like they put on conferences, and I attended them. Like 
I I met like Charlton Heston and Dean Jones uh, when they <laughs> were doing some Christian work in the nineties and DC Talk and I wish DC we'd Talk all been ready and cover. Carmen oh, yeah. oh, uh, Colby and so you know I know like like one of the main figures at Calvary Chapel was Debbie Kerner who went on tour with Love Song. She was one of their first worship leaders, but a woman, so maybe the church the movie isn't as interested in her. But she. One of my favorite, like, like two album jokes is her, she had a, a duo with this guy, Ernie Rettino. They released an album called Friends, and then they got married, and their next album was called More Than Friends. <laughs> and they, they went on to create Salty the Singing Songbook, oh, uh, if you're oh. familiar with it. Yeah, they're, they're a big deal. She, she became, like, the, the head of worship at, at Saddleback Church, the Rick Warren uh. one. And, and then they also wrote, like... One of my favorite things of Christian uh, culture in the '80s and, and '90s is is a, a musical called High Tops, which is sort of a Grease meets Saved by the Bell story about the devil going to high school to get kids to have sex and do drugs and cheat. Yeah, um, very good stuff. And but it all goes back to Calvary Chapel. Like these right. people had an incredibly lasting influence. I don't I don't remember where I started with that, <laughs> but oh yeah, as far as as far as what it is about versus how it is about it. Yeah. It, it ticks a lot of boxes of subjects that are just interesting to me, but it's like when I think about talking to a coworker years ago about Marvel movies and he's like, yeah, I love the new Spider-Man movie. Cause I love Spider-Man. And I'm like, well, doesn't like the nature of the film itself and, and how you feel watching it have any bearing on whether you think it's a good movie or not. And he's like, no, I love Spider-Man. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. And I think, yeah, for me, I'm, like I said, I really love that era. And I think for the average evangelical that's conservative in the pews, I mean, there's nothing really offensive here. They've sanded down the political message. And I think, you know, the marketing of just getting people in church to go see this movie, they are able to see you know, one of the, like you said, it's a hinge point, it's a turning point of what the evangelical movement would become. You know, it was a, a critical point in history for a movie and moving it along. And the movie lets them know that all of the things that happened were all good because look at all the good stuff that they did at the beginning. It obviously had downloads yeah. and well, can't we, can't we be happy getting... with where everything went? Yeah. Well, well, that's I, a th no, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, yeah, and that's the thing, you know, the the title cards over the end, you know, like Greg Laurie goes off to be a huge mega church pastor, and just the absolute numbers and massive amount of influence. And there is a question in there about the syncretism of our capitalist society and Christianity, and what is the definition of success? No. You know, mm -hmm. was the success what came after, or was the success with this group that felt disillusioned with everything going on in the early 70s, and then in that moment, they were taking care of each other, maybe in some way, you know, spiritually, or maybe even meeting physical needs. Uh, Lonnie was trying to heal people, was trying to pray for people. Um, even though I'm not a charismatic, um, you know, I think his heart's in the right place of wanting people to be well and to be better. Um, you know, I'm not saying there aren't elements of that in evangelicalism today, but I think there's there's a lot of toxicity, and, and Zach and I talk a lot about that on our podcast. I'm, I'm glad you brought up the healing thing, because that was that's a big outsider question for me that I wanted y'all to tackle. One of the things that comes between Lonnie and uh, Chuck yeah. mm -hmm. is, that, is that Lonnie thinks he can heal people, claims to have the gift of prophecy, gets goes down a much more sort of charismatic path, and Chuck is uncomfortable with that. And as an outsider who doesn't, traffic with any of this stuff like the the audiences that were told from the pulpit to go see this movie this weekend are they going to side with chuck on that one or with lonnie on that one or is it just a oh i see why these two had to separate because they have different takes it's going to depend subject. on what church they go to <laughs> yeah depend, but yeah. I, I would guess they side with lonnie uh yeah signs and wonders is is the term that gets used for yeah. that um, John Wimber, who who co-founded the the Vineyard with Lonnie in 1980, had a book called Power Evangelism. Uh, I recently saw my mom posting on Facebook asking if anybody had a copy she could borrow. 
Um, but he was a big deal. And then at Fuller Seminary, he taught with C. Peter Wagner, who is the founder of the New Apostolic Reformation movement that a lot of folks have been talking about lately. And and like if you if you listen to that that charismatic revival fury series, or we did an episode with with the guy that did that, Matthew Taylor, mm-hmm. you hear like they went crazy with the spiritual warfare stuff and all the signs and wonders like to the point where like in like 97 they they mounted an expedition to climb mount everest in order to defeat a demon called the queen of heaven and like (laughs) there's a book about it there's a documentary on youtube and and this meant like stabbing the snow with daggers and like oh, yeah. like waving them at the mountain and burning know, yeah. the the buddhist prayer flags that were there and putting very similar looking ones with bible verses on them mm. and it it's just wild wild stuff but it you know <laughs> these are the folks blowing the shofars doing the march before j6 and all that it's it's yep. all connected so everything from the past led up to this so like Lonnie's ideas of focusing on on miracles and you know I guess he wasn't so much spiritual warfare necessarily but um healings and signs and wonders and miraculous things um definitely led to that and yeah in the documentary there's there's a bit where somebody says that you know Chuck absolutely cannot allow Lonnie to like touch people on the forehead and f- have them fall over and hit the ground so they had to like come to a compromise and have people like standing right behind them to yep. like just sort of hold them up. Them. Yeah. Them. Yeah. <laughs> them. And that was no okay. Questions, please. But I think a lot <laughs> of, a lot of the, the, Yeah. But I think a lot of the 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 schism that led to the the, the formation of the vineyard, because the vineyard churches basically were uh Calvary Chapel churches that flipped denominations to vineyard. And I think a lot of that was they wanted to focus more on spiritual warfare and 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 healings and gifts and speaking in tongues and and I yeah. experienced a lot of that at my ch- I remember like in junior high some girl like running around the room squawking like a chicken and they were just like eh, God's doing something here huh <laughs> Maybe. yeah it really it depends on what wing you're from Zach is from the more charismatic Pentecostal side I come from more the reform side and I'm I'm still a, a part of a Presbyterian PCUSA church today um, so I mean. So, yeah, so people may side with Lonnie, but there may be evangelicals who watch it and say, you know, I kind of understand where Chuck Smith is coming from. But there is, in mainstream evangelicalism, I think there is a there is messaging that suggests that people should be unified. So even though, you know, we may think Lonnie might be going too far, we can maybe kind of understand that, and he's still a Christian. So I think, you know, there is kind of a unifying message um, there are Reformed people like John MacArthur who probably think Charismatics and Pentecostals are not Christians and are heretics that take a more extreme side. There, you know, there are different camps, as uh, as Dave and Zach suggested. I I knew people who thought Methodists weren't Christians. <laughs> so, oh yeah, I, yep. And yeah, I, that's still I, my mother-in-law has warned oh, us yeah. about mainline <laughs> mainline denomination people. Eh, you can't trust. I remember in the 90s once, and this is sort of sort of related to this, because when you get so into the weeds on who does what and who likes who and who thinks one is really a Christian and what is it, I will never forget watching a documentary in the 90s with our friend uh, uh, Sarah... Um, uh, Jacobson? Jacobson, yes. How did I forget her name? Say, Sarah Jacobson, Sanders? wonderful uh, filmmaker, uh, uh uh, she made the movie Mary Jane's Not a Virgin Anymore. Okay. And uh, and she and I watched a documentary about Southern Baptists and their, uh, and their problems with, you know, allowing women to serve as leaders uh, in the church. She was raised Jewish. She Well, she, mm. she yeah, she was Jewish, yeah. which is the punchline of this oh, story. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> we walked out of it and she goes... I'm Jewish. None of this matters. <laughs> Just whatever they're doing, it doesn't matter. <laughs> I'm Jewish. <laughs> and and I thought, you're right. None of this matters. <laughs> um, There's a lot of charismatics that say they're Jewish, too. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't until like my mid-20s that somebody pointed out, yeah, Messianic Judaism, that's not a thing. That's just <laughs> Christian. What are you talking about? But yeah, those are the folks that like, 
appropriate the symbols. Like when I got so married, just, my my sorry. my wife's grandpa like like wore a Jewish prayer shawl and did some blessing for us, and we didn't know what was going on, but they they wanted to do it at our wedding, so we said okay. And I don't know what else they included in that, but um, they're not Jewish. <laughs> so I guess before we wrap this up, uh, Dave L, how are you going to fix this? <laughs> I pose this question that, to you. That is the the <laughs> that is the million dollar question, isn't it? Um, I am I am in no position of influence. I'm not a pastor. Um, I. I, I hope that um, I don't know. Like to me, I hope that people would go back to a lot of the the values of Jesus. I, I don't see that at all in Trump and its movement. You know, um, and and to be fair, there, there's I think Trump gets all the attention because it's the era that we're currently living in, and then you know we fear he will come back again, the second coming of Trump coming here. Um, but the toxicity has has existed for a long time, and I think we're all aware of that. You have a, a history in the church yourself, Dave, and and Zach has been around as well. Zach and I were members at Mars Hill for Mars Hill Church with Mark Driscoll for, you know, a time in our lives. Yeah. Um, so we we have seen the the toxic masculinity, um, the right wing populism that can kind of syncretize and be in the church, and I think is problematic. Um, but I, I really wish that the church would go back to caring, you know, caring about the poor. There are Christians who do that and there are evangelicals who do that as well. Um, but a lot of the stuff that is popular in the culture doesn't seem to be those things that you can, you know, clearly find in the Bible. Yeah. I think I, the Christian left exists, but I think they're too nice to win. <laughs> and yeah. then, it's and a, that, it's a minority for sure. The <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yep. Well, a, a ton to unpack here, obviously, and and you know we 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 just begun scratching the surface of of what this movie is trying to sell to people and how they're doing it. But uh, this uh, it was a really illuminating conversation. Very glad to have you guys with us. Uh, tell uh, our audience real quick where can they find you? How can they listen to your show? All that good stuff. Uh, you can listen to our show wherever you like to get podcasts. So we're on Spotify. We're on Apple, for example, Veterans of Culture Wars. Um, you can follow us on Twitter at VCWPod. And I am at Dave J. Lester. Zach is? Uh, Muzak, M-U-Z-A-C-H. Perfect. And I really do recommend that y'all listen to Veterans of Culture Wars if you are like me and you know about this stuff and you maybe are looking at it from a distance now and still trying to figure out how it, how you might still be mixed up in it or how it mixed you up. Um, this is yep. a good show. I recommend it to everybody. It's It's been a journey for us doing it for sure. We're at first I'm like, Oh yeah, we're doing a story about like kooky Christian culture in America. Yeah. Oh, we're doing a story about, uh, you know, misogyny run rampant to uphold powerful people in, in a faith. Oh, we're doing a story about, we're doing a show about uh, white Christian nationalism is really what this is about. Oh, we're, we're really, our show, I guess, is about how trauma has <laughs> impacted my entire life because of the ways that evangelicalism impacted my childhood and the way that I was raised. And uh, yeah, it's been illuminating <laughs> to mm -hmm. say the least dave well, we yeah. would love to have you on sometime i would love to be on sometime absolutely cool yeah. so th yeah thanks again for for being here y'all check out veterans of cultural wars if you haven't already and uh thanks for just joining us for this special episode where we're talking about jesus revolution like i said our main episode is going to be dropping shortly uh discussing uh cocaine bear and a lot of other magic big, mike and magic cocaine Mike's bear last dance. yeah exactly so <laughs> There's a double the real, for you. The real stuff. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thanks for tuning in. We will catch up with you next time. Until then, goodbye. <laughs>